0: Hello, I'm Junius Williams, your host on the podcast, Everything's Political. We're going to go into an area that I've been dying to talk about. What is the role of racial identity in the youth movement today? Hence the title, Am I Black Enough, Baby? And we're going to go right into the introductions with that burning question in the minds of all of our listeners. I know that a lot of Black people want to hear this. A lot of white people want to hear this from their perspective. I don't know about the Latinos, whether they care or not, but we're going to include them on the Black-hand side. So my co-host, as always, Francesca Larson. She is also my producer with the group called Mosaic Strategies here in New Jersey. She's going to be doing double duty here today. She's got to hold up the women's banner as well as be asking some good questions as the co-host. Then I want to introduce my good friend, Sam Anderson, who's a native of Bedford-Stuyvesant. That's Brooklyn. He's a retired math and Black history professor. He says he's a writer of sorts. He's a founding member of the Black Panther Party, a SNCC volunteer author of The Black Holocaust for Beginners, and he is an NYC People's Board of Education advocate, a grandpa, and husband. He spells husband, H-U-Z-Z-B-I-N, so you know he must be old school and very colored.
1: <laughs>
0: Next! Next! I want to introduce a young man who used to be in Newark, but now he's in L.A., and that is Darnell Moore, who's the author of the 2019 Lambda Literary Award-winning memoir, No Ashes in the Fire, Coming of Age, Black and Free in America, which was listed in the 2018 NYT Notable Book and a Barnes & Noble Discover great new writer's pick. Darnell is also a writer-in-residence at the Center on African-American Religion, Politics, and Social Justice at Columbia University, and a whole lot of other things. His writings have appeared in the New York Times, Book Review, Playboy, Vice, The Guardian, The Nation, and he's Director of Inclusion Strategy for Content and Marketing at Netflix. Welcome aboard, Darnell, I haven't seen you in a long time. Glad to be here. Finally, last but certainly not least, and we've been going in descending age order after Francesca, which shall remain a mystery, Che Williams. Che Williams is a young filmmaker. Most notably, he worked with Black Friend Productions in New York City on the three time Emmy nominated Tulsa Burning. A documentary of the Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre, and he is my youngest son, my youngest child, making his second appearance in everything's political, and I know how old he is, so that's who we have today. So, since we're talking about black, we're going to get into what it means to be black and African American. For those of you who out there who are organizers who want to just be proper, I guess we could call it African-American, but Black people call ourselves Black. I want to find out when you first considered yourself to be Black.
2: And let's start with you, Darnell. Good question. And I'm really happy to be in conversation with all of you. I think back to the moment that, and I didn't have this language as a young person, where Blackness became less of a cultural designation and more of a way to point to a political identity. And that moment for me occurred when I was 13 or 14. I was in eighth grade at Morgan Village Middle School in Camden, New Jersey, which is my hometown. And we were charged with writing poetry that would then be entered into the sort of school-wide poetry contest. And the winner from the school-wide poetry contest would then, that poem would be placed in sort of the larger district's poetry contest. And I remember, y'all, I don't remember the exact title of the poem. I just remember it being one of the Blackest quote-unquote poems I've ever written And I was 14. And Black, not in a sense of sort of cultural identity, right? But like radical, political like ideation and ideas. And the reason why it was so Black, because two things happened to me that year. I had a white teacher who told me that I could not write. And she was the teacher that was the doorway to young people like me getting access into Private schools within South Jersey, and it was the same year that the re- uh, regional and local newspapers derided the young kids, the young black and Latinx kids at Morgan Village Middle School, because Miss Universe or Miss America had visited the school, and a whole story was about the sort of young betrodden black kids that she was going to introduce herself to. Now, at a very young age, I was very cognizant at what the meta narratives about young Black people, particularly in working class places like Camden, were, And my poem was a response to that. And I would always was Black, Black. I was just saying all oh, like, and I don't even know where it came from besides the fact that it was motivated by what the narratives about young people like me were being sort of put out in the world in that moment. I'll just end by saying, the person who was the reader at the contest, and I won the poetry contest, by the way, Power, Power to Black, mm-hmm. And the person that was given that, that read right after me, who was a, the sort of professional reader, was Sonia Sanchez. And I just heard her reading. I heard her cussing. And I was just like, oh, shit. Like, this is, you know. Um, so I would say that that was a moment for me where Blackness became something other than like a way to talk about genealogies, which, of course, we can talk about that, a way to talk about a movement from a type of political idea that shifts away just from community connection to something bigger to something more along the lines of a radical vision for what liberation looks like for a people that's lodged in what we might call a black politic. How
1: about you, Sam? I think I was a Negro until 1964, after the March on Washington, after the Birmingham stuff, and after hearing Malcolm, and then Malcolm coming to Lincoln University where I was, And seeing that his number two person was a Lincoln alum, I became more aware of the absurdity of using a Spanish word to define us who speak English. And all of the political stuff that went along with that and began to identify with the Black nationalist folk in Harlem. And began, you know, to see at that point, it was fairly quick turn, as you know, Junius, in that period, the social movements were almost a daily revelation of political and cultural realities within Black America. And, you know, within a matter of literally a couple of weeks, I no longer saw myself as a Negro and I saw myself as a Black person. I saw myself as a person of African descent. That was the other thing that the experience that Lincoln gave me being at at that time a small historically black college with mainly males, about 450 men. For the most part, there were eight women, eight to 10 women who, who were students there. But one quarter to one third of those men were people of African descent from Africa and the Caribbean. And that, Mayu, was really very formative in getting an understanding of, of, of who I am. Besides, part of my family is out of the Caribbean and the other part is out of the South of the United States. And so all of those things, and then my grandfather being a, a Garveyite, all of those things came into shape if you will, in that latter part of 1964, October, November, and by December, I'm black.
0: <laughs> Francesca, I wanna put your comments in context because your mother is white, your father black. Yes. What does being black mean to you?
3: Are you just gonna out me like that?
0: I am. <laughs> You want to try that again? Is this one of those moments where you don't want to be
3: out? No, no, no. Junius has been waiting to ask me this question for years. Years (laughs) he's been waiting to ask me this question. (laughs) And he's like, I've got her trapped. She's on a panel. She can't do anything about it. So as Junius said, yes, I've got a white mom, or I had a white mom. My mom recently passed away. And my first consciousness of Blackness was coming home from daycare and asking my mother when she was going to get darker. And my family likes to tell that story based upon my personality and how comfortable I was in my own skin. But now being a parent myself, what I know happened in that moment was that I was starting to understand very quickly, very early- What were teachers saying? What were the implications of that? Because I didn't create it myself. I didn't ask my mom when her hair was gonna get curly. I asked her when she was gonna get darker. And I think that what's happened over time for me is that my blackness has gotten encountered almost on a daily basis. It almost gets questioned on a daily basis. Where does it fit in? I had, in one of my first jobs, somebody called me a universal Negro. (laughs) (laughs) You walk into a room, you know I'm not white, but you don't quite know visually where I fit into that spectrum, which means that people say all sorts of shit around me. And it is a universal comfort to be racist, a universal comfort to talk about race, to ask me questions to have me be an expert on something that I might not always be an expert on. So that's kind of how I've also found my Blackness is figuring out what of those conversations I'm comfortable participating in, where I want to use my voice, where I think my voice is appropriate, where I need to take a step back and listen to the place where I think I've really come into my Blackness, and Junius asked me how old I was, but this will give some context, it's 30-ish years since that moment with my mom and the teacher, I became a Black mother, and that is a different identity. It's an identity that started going into the hospital on the day that I delivered, where my Blackness was a reason to not receive proper medical care, that my child's life was in jeopardy. Like the stats of black children and black mothers in New York City, it is a life-threatening event. And so from my perspective, that's really changed how I use my voice as a black mother, as an advocate, being able to speak to these issues, being able to know that, yeah, I've got some agency because I had a white mom, I'm comfortable in white spaces, White people are comfortable saying a lot more crazy shit around me, but I also get to hear the conversations that go on at both dinner tables, that my community is reflective of my background. One thing that blackness doesn't mean for me is a connection to Africa. And that's because my white side of my family has a stronger connection to Africa. So the stories, my Italian side grew up in Kenya my understanding of Africa, the roots that I have there are very much disconnected from my blackness. My father's side does not connect to blackness in that way and I think that'll be interesting. I've never been to Africa. I think maybe that'll give me a different view of it. So genius when we go to Africa
0: <laughs> when you get ready to pay for me to go, Let me go to Che, Che Williams.
4: I don't have, you guys had really great points. I think, I think I became black, you know, when I went to boarding school at 14, just barely 14 in Newtown, Pennsylvania. And it was blackness because of being the other. So, you know, I went to a majority black elementary, middle school, like 99% black. Um, And then you go to a high school with white kids and Asian kids from all over the world. And I think then you become the other. So you become more aware of, blackness not just like like darnell said as a culture but as a political ideology as a way of understanding so i think then being there living also you're living there so it's also very much so a tribal type of vibe you know everybody kind of gravitates towards what they know the guys from cities are all friends with guys from cities the people from the town are all friends with people from the town all the asian guys get into their little fragrance so in the dorm which is its own little tribe you have subsects of that so I think that's when I really became aware of that, like, oh, you guys don't talk like this, or oh, like, you know, you guys aren't engaged in these activities in the way that I am. So I think it was really as a term, I think I became black in terms
0: of socially and a way of understanding my peers at that age. Now, I'm You reminded me of something. Though. This is a book called How to Be Black by a guy named Baratunde Thurston. Sometimes I don't know when to take this guy seriously. I bought it kind of like on a on a lark, but the, he's got some uh, interesting conversations in here. Let me read this to you and see if you can react to this, Jay, When I went to boarding school, I met a lot of African-Americans who were legitimately in a city or playing it up to try to retain some kind of Blackness. Their whole thing was about do the right thing, the movie, urban culture, Spike Lee, and I'm like, this guy just seems angry and disgruntled. That was not my experience of blackness.
4: Are you asking me what I think of that, or what? Uh,
0: yeah, what do you think of that?
4: I think there's legitimacy to that, but again, that's a different era. This guy seems a little older than me, based off the "do the right thing" reference. But I think I'm not sure if this guy is from the suburbs, but I think a lot of the inner city black guys just gravitated towards each other because we were from inner city, so we have an, an extra way of understanding each other that the kids from. A small town or the students from West Africa might not relate to. So I think that's just, again, another way of understanding that that helps
0: young kids who are trying to find themselves, I think, kind of breaks it down a little easier. I can't help joining in here because Sam said something about how sudden the movement became toward being Black. You all, I think the thing that the three of you have in common is that it was not a jump. But to us, we had been Negroes so long and even colored Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. some of our perspective, you know. And I think the same thing kind of happened to me. In 1963, I went to Uganda with Crossroads Africa. And the brothers who were there with us, they call them our counterparts. They were bricklayers and we were building a, a hospital. So here were these guys who enjoyed their arms being rusty. My mother used to say, man, you got to put some <laughs> Vaseline on your arm, because your arms are too rusty. <laughs> put this vaseline on. These guys were writing numbers, calculations about how to blade a bricks, And I said, what? And I noticed that I was getting rusty too, as I always did. But here it took on another significance. And then my hair kept growing and growing and growing. There were no barbers in the uh, farming area of uh, Uganda up there in the mountains of the moon. And so when I came back, I had a big Afro. And I enjoyed writing on my skin. And the white people who were in the group, they couldn't do that. (laughs) That's when I became black. (laughs) <laughs> Most my parents wanted to send me to the barber immediately. My father asked me, son, are you a communist? And all of these things happened kind of like all at once. And from that point forward, it's like a switch that you guys didn't have to go through. We had to go through that switch because all along we had been told we were colored, we were Negroes. And that meant something that was deficient in us but here sam and i found something that was quite positive something that we we liked
2: and we just went with it i will say um I, I when i was listening to you and sam i was thinking about just how radically powerful it would have been just to name yourself like other something other than negro right something other than color, just like the pronunciation of Blackness itself was itself just radical. Absolutely. But here's the thing, like the thing that I would say is similar in spite of the generational difference is, yes, I came into a world where Blackness was a term that was endeared because of, by the benefit of Black power. We still were in an anti-Black world nonetheless. And I still had to grow up really understanding Blackness as something that was to be celebrated, and not deride it because the world and the anti-black world—that's what you're taught. So it's not like at 14 I'm waking. You know, that I think even in the 80s, I'm so I came up of age in the 80s. I was still having to sort of wrestle with the resonances and the residue of anti-blackness as a young person with dark skin, big nose, big lips, who culture is commoditizing blackness, but they're also telling you that they hate it. Mm-hmm. So to get to a point where I was able to say, oh, shit, I'm Black, that itself would, took a lot of work for me to do as a young kid coming up in the an 80s. And I imagine, I imagine, I don't know, Che, like closer to like this age, I imagine that struggle still the same, you no? Know? Like just to get to a point where Blackness becomes something that's celebratory, after you have to have to teach yourself out of the lies that an anti-Black world has taught you, it's still work. Absolutely. I don't know if it's such a light switch. I don't know if it's such a light switch.
4: Absolutely. And I think even so, like when I was in high school, social media was coming of age. So you see, you know, there's kind of two sides of social media. There's the side of social media, which praises, you know, blackness and, you know, and then there's also the side of, you know, the anti-black side. So I think even that, that kind of hyper-awareness that kids have today and when I was coming up of both sides. So I think that even that kind of constant on both ends, I think can be detrimental, especially at such a formative age.
3: Yeah. Darnell, one of the things that I was thinking about with what you were saying is I remember being in the beauty salon and being so confused about celebrating Blackness and straightening my hair. Just that those two things existed in the same moment, that we are literally in one space talking about how great it is to be Black but everybody is sitting there spending all of our money trying to get hair that doesn't represent that. Mm
0: -hmm. Right. (laughs) Culturally, we've been talking about it culturally, what it means to be black and the powerful impact it had on us. James Boggs said it's not enough to be culturally black. You got to have some power. And that's what we're talking about in this segment of the podcast So let's move into that somewhat now. We've got all of our identities established, and I'm going back to Sam. Why did we feel we had to focus so much on racial identity when we were organizing in the 1960s?
1: Because of the in-your-face daily white supremacist onslaught that we had to face, both from our peers our educators, our politicians, the media. So it came to a point where we had to act in the opposite way. We had to speak. We had to identify ourselves. And, you know, you call me Black? Okay, fine. I'm proud of that. Yes, I'm Black. All right? Unapologetically Black. And then once we made that statement, we began to take on all of the historical and cultural positive baggage of blackness, the kings and queens of Africa, the resistance movements within chattel slavery, the Garvey movement and the Harlem Renaissance, all of those things began to become part of our life, if you will. You know, and I became a writer because I was reading black writers like Ellison. And James Baldwin was my primary inspirer. And then later, the writings that came out of Negro Digest that eventually became Black World. You know, my colleagues, my fellow students at Lincoln, who were also budding poets, was a South African brother who was a journalist in exile, who saw us doing poetry. And he said, I want to try that. And from his first poem, on to, unfortunately, he died, on to his last, he was a poet. And we identified with South Africa and the South Africans identified with us because of the similar realities. The poet I'm talking about is a poet we used to call Little Willie because a lot of us couldn't pronounce his last name or his first name, Karapetsi Kozitzili, who eventually became the first poet laureate of South Africa. But he got his start in writing about writing Black poetry within the African-American context, within Black America's context. He married an African-American woman. He lived with us until he was able to go back home. So for me, Blackness turns to be, over time, something that is unbelievably global. And then later in the 80s, When I'm running into people of color out of England, and they're saying to me, even though they come from India, or they came from the Middle East, they say, I'm black. I'm black. I'm black. And it took me a while to understand. What they did with the term black was to have it in political opposition to the white supremacists, white colonialists. Re, uh, historical and present day reality that they face. So they they said being Black is opposite than being this colonial, post-colonial reality. And that was an eye opener for me in terms of you know the evolution of this term Black, uh, once we take it outside of the, the context of the U.S. But Black, to me, I still use the term, even though I also say I'm African, even though I also say I'm African-American. <laughs> it's a fascinating reality for people of African descent in the United States to label themselves. It depends on on the political context, the cultural context, who your people around you are, and so forth. When I was at Lincoln in 65, we had Professor Charles Hamilton, who uh, eventually wrote the book, Black Power, with Kwame Ture. He was our professor there in political science, and he started talking about, in 65, the importance of Black political power, not just the cultural component, but the development of Black self-reliance and political self-determination. And SNCC had a retreat Maybe spring of 66 or something like that. And I went to the retreat. I, I wrote up a paper on the importance of black political power. And for months, a few months later, on the march, you hear, oh, what's his name? Willie Ricks. Willie Ricks, but he has a, a African name now, yelling out black power. What we want? What do we want? Black power. And that picked up in the media and resonated throughout Black America overnight, right? That's what we want, Black power. And so being, to me, once we made that transition as young activists, as just young folk in the community, from being Negro to being Black, it was just a matter of a short while before we started advocating for Black power. Advocating for Black self-determination, supporting the ideas of reparations and so forth in that period. A lot of things opened up from that, that whole bit. And pushing Johnson Publication to change the name of their, their magazine. That was Johnson's first magazine, Negro Digest, because he was ripping off of the uh, white magazine, Reader's Digest, when he created it. And they did. They made that change to uh, the Black world. Negro Digest to the Black world. So it showed how powerful in that space of, I would say, two years, two and a half years of that complete transition. And then it gets absolutely legitimized when James Brown comes out with, I'm Black and I'm proud. And, you know, there's no going back after that. And Nina Simone, to be young, gifted, and Black was the other. So the evolution of the term is also reflective of the political and cultural radicalization of Black America. So did we
0: go too far with that term, Sam? I'm talking about what some folks call a narrow nationalism. What do you think about that?
1: No, I don't think so. I think one of the problems was that we did not define it definitively. The we, the progressive elements, did not define it definitively. Do you think, and I guess
0: maybe this is to all of us, do you think that when we start talking about black power, we got that into the election booth and we put too much emphasis on black elected officials? Let me read you a little something from the public intellectual. James Boggs, he said, as a result, the ruling class was able to use Blackness to create a small Black middle class to confuse and demoralize the majority of Black people. All that Blacks had to do was shout Black, and they were given Black studies programs, Black judges, Black mayors, Black superintendents, Black foremen, and Black police chiefs, all of whom began doing exactly what white judges, white mayors, white school superintendents, white foremen, and white police chiefs had been doing all along. Meanwhile, in our communities, the great mass of Black people, and particularly our young people, became increasingly desperate, everyone doing his or her own thing, turning on one another, ripping each other off, and all we had to do was to try to organize and do something along the line of changing what the status quo was in society rather than focusing on being Black. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And many of us during that period realized that and trying to create organizations in the community to bring about, how would you say, a more Black working class solidarity effort across the country. Indeed. You know, we saw that in New York City. One classic example, there's the struggle for community control in the late 1960s over public schools. And the end result was decentralization with Black folk in high places. We saw that. You could see it and you're active in the, and you could just see it around you in coming at you in slow motion. And you're trying to say to people. That, for example, sending activist parents who were very active in the community control struggle, sending them for a summer at Harvard, sponsored by the Ford Foundation, and giving them a certificate and them coming back, they've negatively transformed. And then the politicians running the hustle in supporting this Decentralization Act, as opposed to the um, development of community control of schools. So I know I was definitely one of those who was very critical of that transition to politicians and Negro politicians. Well, let me ask
0: you this, Darnell, because you were one of the uh, original people who were a part of the organization or the movement called Black Lives Matter. A couple of questions on that. How do you all deal with the whole question of racial identity when you're organizing, and you are also noted as a gay rights advocate. How did you all deal with some of the mistakes, if I could call them that, and not get really jacked up by my friends, some of the mistakes that we made in the Black Power Movement as defined by Sam
2: and I? I appreciate you naming that. I mean, I want to start by naming that every generation is going to have to evaluate who it allows to sit at the center and who it pushes further and further and further to the margins. And that's going to be something that we repeat all the time. I think there's this sort of fight for the center. And one of the things that we learned in organizing that first ride to Ferguson after Mike Brown was killed with the Black Lives Matter Freedom Rides that from Jersey, too, helped to put together one of the first points of critique that we got back. And I'm going to start here and I'm working my way backward because I like to start with self-reflexive analysis as a opposed to point my finger. One of the first points of critique that we got back was, oh, you know, this is very different than organizing in the past. And that is very intersectional in terms of who there isn't sort of like a straight cisgender, like charismatic male leader only right there are women involved. There are cis women and trans women. There's all manner of people. It's not like you get to be James Baldwin and only talk good Black shit, but your full sexual sexual personhood not be accepted. It's not like, you know, I was saying on our, as we were gathering people, this is not like buy it, Rustin 2.0, right? You don't have to leave parts of your entirety of your Black identity at the door for the sake of the radical racial politic. This is not going to be a place where women are seen as accessories, To what is understood to be a male dominated conversation. In fact, it was women, mostly women led. It was mostly queer folk led. It was mostly, you know, the young kids with the sagging pants who, because of respectability reasons, may not be seen as being viable conversation partners. These were the people, right, that were at the heart of that. And even with that, we had trans sisters from places like Ohio that said to us, Y'all talking a good game. You know, you're saying that this is run by queer folk and it's women here and it's young folk and it's not just sort of like ages or, you know, and yet no trans person was part of the organizing body that helped to plan this. And we had to take that feedback because they were right. So it's not enough to talk a good game about a Blackness that is elastic enough and big enough to contain all of our complexities. Part of the politic is actually delivering on this idea that when we're talking about a type of Black politic in 2022, that Blackness got to be big enough for all of us. Because the moment that I put my fist up in the air and I'm talking about the mattering of Black lives, our Black lives matter, but I'm not thinking about the Black lives of my Black trans colleagues or friends and peers or the working class folk that are living in a project or the incarcerated folk or the queer folk, then my Black politic is shabby. And what I will say about the past I had to learn from the mistakes of the generations that came before me. I knew that before Amiri, who I loved, Amiri Baraka, lifts up his name and celebrate him, before he goes on to celebrate Baldwin at his home going, he was also calling him names. Let's be real about that, right? Like We can go down a line right, with, with what happened with Baldwin, the way that women were treated. Pauli Murray, for crying out loud, somebody who preceded notions of gender non-binaryism, right? Like there were Black people Always who were queer, who were trans, women folk who did the hard work of animating providing political frameworks for a movement, who were left out the conversation, moved out of the history books. And we gotta attend to that and not replicate it. So what I think is that it's the job of any generation to say, yes, okay, we know in the center, when you begin to analyze who is existing on the edges of the edges of the margins and and then sort of do the work of solving for their being engrafted into the work, that's when I know we're on to something. Well, Francesca,
0: I saw you nodding your head. I saw Che nodding his head. What do both of you have to say with respect to that? Uh, First Francesca and then Che.
3: You asked Sam about electing and focusing on electing officials, about taking leadership positions. And my first thought was, I think it's so important to have representation, but what we didn't have was representation of the true leadership of the movements. We didn't have women in office. We didn't have black women in office. We didn't have black women in leadership positions and speaking to what's changed in the movements that Darnell is helping to lead that I am a part of is that we are having a more inclusive body of leadership and that that is continuing as success is reached. So once we've reached a point and we're able to take an additional seat at that table, We're bringing an additional person with us. And it's not just anymore that there is one seat at the table. There's now five seats at the table. And it's my job to make sure if I get a seat at the table that I'm bringing somebody else with me. And I think that that is a big difference from the generation behind us and something that I'm very conscious of as even as I'm, I'm growing in my own career, as I'm growing in my own leadership capabilities. And it sounds like Darnell, you and I are also entering into structures that are more corporate environments where we don't have the same experience that we have had in movements where there are a limited number of seats at the table and there's a career pathway associated with it. But what is our job in that space? And is it any different than it was in the movement? or in organizing. Can we still be organizers in the boardroom? And I think that that is kind of the the gift that our generation has been given is that we are in those seats, but how do we continue to organize from there? How do we continue to be Black in that space?
2: Can I just add one thing here? Because I don't want to let our generation off the hook, to, uh, my generation off the hook and the generations behind me. And as much as I think that we had to contend, and we have always contended with sexism and misogyny and patriarchy, right? And antagonism against gay and queer and bi folk and trans folk. I remember being on, I was on Twitter talking about a Trans Lives Matter, just as a quick like story to illuminate that we still got work to do. It was like Black Trans Lives Matter March in Brooklyn or something. And I'm tweeting that out. Do you know how many people tweeted me back saying, what is this? This is taking us away. This is not really the Black rat. What does that got to do with Black politics? That's what was being tweeted to me. And I'm like, oh, you don't get it, right? Like a Black politic, if it is a radically liberatory Black politic, it is going to account for all the Blacks, even our trans folk. That is from a younger generation. That still happens today. You will have folk that says they will not come to a rally if it's not a cisgender, straight male person that was shot by, if it's a woman shot by police, if it's a little girl who was assaulted by a Black man in the community, those are not conversations that people are trying to have. They're telling you that that's deviating from what we're supposed to be doing. That's still the work, y'all, in 2022 that we're still left to do is helping to unpack that. So I just want to name that because I don't want to make it seem like there's some generational bias here that somehow folk from prior generations were much more homophobic or much more. No, it's still present today. What do you think, Jay?
4: Two things. Um, Kind of first, chiming on what Darnell said, I think, again, social media allows for some of that homophobia, transphobia that might, that definitely existed in previous generations to now manifest and be emboldened to, you know, to tweet Darnell that because of the veil. So I think that becomes even more dangerous. And I see that, with people my age, with people, you know, kind of the folks who are on social media who are talking. And then there was something Francesca said. I think kind of when like in college and, you know, going to places, I think now people, you know, intersectionality is important and representation important, but it's less important to just be there and like, all right, now back to regular, you know, scheduled programming, let's get back to being black. And I think something I hear a lot, you know, on social media with my peers is taking up space. And I think taking up space in these rooms means that, we're not just here to be like, you know, a token, like, all right, we have our young person. Now let's talk about really, let's talk about voting rights. It's like, okay, like, well, you know what I mean? Like I might see this through a different lens. So I think people who have been taking up the space more people who are older, who are men, who are cisgendered, you know, who are middle-class. So I think people from the, the marginalized, from the edges of the margins are now taking up space, not only in social media, but in, you know, as they get into corporate America. And I think that will only grow as, as these conversations continue to occur.
3: I'd love, Darnell, to talk a little bit about what you're doing now because I realize that, Genius, you covered that in the intro section, but I think, Darnell, some of your story that you can be an organizer and work in corporate America is an important story. I don't know if he wants to talk about that.
2: (laughs) That deserves its own podcast. I mean, I'm a media person and I'm a creative, a cultural producer a writer and I've done docs and stuff. So I've been in and out the corporate space within media for some over the last 10 years. But um, now I'm vice president of inclusion strategy for content and marketing, publicity awards, studio operations and animation at Netflix. And the reason why that was an important role for me is because as an organizer and as an artist who understood that my 11 year old nephew in Camden is likely probably not following the hashtag intersectionality debate on twitter but it's probably watching tv it's probably watching tiktok Is probably watching ig right seeing any opportunity i have to help be part of a process to bring cultural production to our folk who have long been left out and our representations have been left there's a lot of work to do to repair what hollywood has harmed and there's a lot of stories that tell and if my little black ass from camden growing up had some sense that black kids who are gay and working class and working poor could live and become something other than what somebody told them they can't. And if I saw that on TV, how much more would have done for me? It's one of the reasons why I'm in my job because I want to make it possible. I want to give people access to the type of visions for themselves and the type of cultural production, whether that's film or TV, that can be possible for them. I'll end by saying that my nephew is 10 And he there's a show that we have on Netflix called Raising Dion. You know, I won't say it's he loves it. (laughs) But it's the story of a little black boy that has superpowers. And my nephew is enamored with this show. And I kept thinking, well, damn, I think when I was growing up in the 80s, I don't remember really seeing stories of like black kids with power at all. Right. And how much that one story. As an optic might be do something for him as a young kid in terms of his own imagination. So my work is really about making more of that possible, and I'm happy to be doing it at this point in my. Life.
0: Che, mm-hmm. as a filmmaker, Che, what is your hope and aspiration in that whole area? Mm-hmm. So I think I gravitated towards visual storytelling as opposed to like
4: any other means I think one because unlike any other you know theater or film, it's there and it lives forever the images that are seen, and it's always the same every time you look at it. So I think that's why I was initially drawn to film just like as a visual content creator and storyteller. But I think in terms of the stories that I kind of gravitate towards, I think are stories that show black people living. And I think that's so important because like if you look at, you know, the black stories, um, the black voices section in Netflix, it shows a lot of black life. And I think that's so much more important than seeing, you know, I love Fruitvale Station, and Fruitville Station shows that before Oscar Grant died, he lived and he had a purpose and he had a vision for his life. And I think seeing movies like that that are multi-dimensional, I think are so important in terms of what black kids see. So I think that's why I want to be a visual storyteller, as I say, or a filmmaker.
2: I would just add, you've made me think about Chad, as you were talking, I made a concrete, not a yeah, a choice to move between these worlds of sort of like organizing and cultural production and creativity. Pretty much like inspired by Robin D.G. Kelly's work, Freedom Dreams and the Black Radical Imagination, where he's talking about part of one of the muscles, the engines of organizing or of creative possibility for Black liberation is the arts and culture. Can't forget that. Like, yes, I can organize in the street and I can do policy work done all of that. But I also know that art, which is what we sort of started our pre-conversation with, is just as critical. It fuels everything for us and expands our imagination. So, I didn't see any, like there was no hiccup for me to move into cultural work because I know how powerful it can be to shift how we come to think of ourselves, our politics, the grounds of our imagination, and so much else. Well, I
0: think that is very well said on everybody's part. Let me just read a little something else from James Boggs to try to summarize it. This is something called The Urgent Plea, a call for black leadership, I think it was done in the 1970s. Today, we must not minimize the struggle or waste our time saying what black leadership should have done. We have to be clear that yesterday's movement succeeded in winning the civil rights that we should have had all along. We also have to be clear that in the course of the struggle, we all became better people. We rediscovered our heritage, our pride in ourselves, we were particularly proud that in American society, which has begun by defining Blacks as only three-fifths of a person, African-Americans have always been the ones to raise the fundamental question of what it means to be a human being and how human beings should relate to one another. That's James Bob commenting on the 60s and the 70s. And I'm just going to kind of summarize what Darnell has said. The only difference is, and it's a big difference, is that when we raise that fist, it's got to be big enough for all of us who are Black. And I think with that, I really appreciate you guys coming on and teaching us, teaching me. I'm sure we have a lot of people out there who have learned. And until next time, when we're going to be talking about, do women make the best organizers? And I don't dare have this number of men talking about that. I guess I'll have to be the only one like you are, Francesca, today. So that's it for us. And I hope you have enjoyed the program. This is Junius Williams, your host on Everything's Political. Everything's Political Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Education and Juvenile Justice and supported by the Terrell Foundation and listeners like you. It is produced by Mosaic Strategies with theme music by Anthony Ant Jackson. Like what you hear? Subscribe to Everything's Political Podcast on Spotify and follow us on Facebook and Instagram for exclusive behind-the-scenes content.